Titus 2. You, however, must teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. Teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, and sound in faith, in love, and in endurance. Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way that they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. Then they can urge the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind, and to be subject to their husbands, so that no one will malign the word of God. Similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled. In everything, set them an example by doing what is good. In your teaching, show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned, so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. Teach slaves to be the subject to their masters in everything, to try to please them, not to talk back to them, and not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted, so that in every way they will make the teaching about God our Saviour attractive. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, while we wait for the blessed hope the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. These, then, are the things you should teach. Encourage and rebuke with all authority. Do not let anyone despise you. Let me perform some renovations here. <laughs> All right, at least I managed to not spill my glass of water. I did that this morning. Good evening. It's good to, to be with you this evening. It's been a little while since I preached here, actually, between um, uh, holidays and um, I've spent quite a bit of time on our uh, West Invest grant application, which I'm pleased to say has been submitted. So we'll find out. In... Yes, that was quite a mammoth effort. You guys at uni who, you know, do these big assignments and stuff, it's like just doing a massive assignment. It's, um, I felt like I was back at uni. Um, but it's submitted. Hopefully we'll find, well, we'll find out later in the year. Hopefully, God willing, um, who knows, it might be successful, but we'll find out. Um, the application is, to, uh, is for a government, in case you don't know, it's for a government um, grant program uh, to invest in community infrastructure in the form of land and a church building slash community centre um, in this part of the world, which is growing rapidly. So we'll, uh, we'll see how we go. But I'm here to talk about Titus 2, which is a fabulous passage. Um, so let's, um, let me pray again and then let's get into it. Father God, we, we thank you for your word and we thank you for this time tonight. Father, we ask that you would work in us, that you would move us by your spirit as we hear your word, that you would motivate us and change us in line with your will, and we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. If you could change something about your life, uh, what would it be? And when I say your life, I'm talking about sort of now and going forward. It's not a kind of looking back on your life, what would I have done differently? But what, what would you change going forward? If, if there's you know, things that you could change about your life. If, if you feel comfortable, just take 30 seconds, chat to the person next to you. Uh, what would you change if you could you know, change something going forward?
All right, that's, that's probably long enough. Got you, got you thinking. Does anyone want to offer up a, a suggestion uh, that they or their, their friend might have, um, might have said? I know this could be, you know, deeply personal, but yes, Eli. You, you, you'd like to never sin again ever. That's a good answer. <laughs> you'd like to loan, own a Land Cruiser? Does anyone own a Land Cruiser that, that uh, they could help Alex out here? No. Um, any other suggestions? I said more kick-ons. More kick-ons. You're aspirational for more kick-ons. Look, I think we're all aspirational for various things, things that we'd like to change in our life, things we'd like, ways in which we'd like to grow or improve things. I think that's true for all of us. For those who are young starting out in life, maybe you've got aspirations around career, maybe you've got aspirations around relationships. Maybe for others, it's about improving the quality of life in some way. Maybe there's things, you know, like to be less busy or less stressed or have more money or more experiences, things like that. For some people, it could be around health, you know, wanting to have better health. Or maybe there's some other personal goals, some change that you want to bring about. I think we all have, we all have hopes, we all have aspirations to change in some sort of way, things that we want to be, to be different but as we, we sit with our aspirations and hopes, we, we don't sit in a kind of vacuum. We're actually shaped and influenced and pressured in different ways by various expectations of the world and the culture around us. And, and those things can and they, they almost inevitably do shape what we want, what we value, including what we want to change in our lives. I think one of the, the dominant conforming pressures of our culture is somewhat ironically individualism, uh, where the, the self reigns supreme. Now, I define my life the way I want it to be, and I define who I am and who I want to become, including how I want to change my life. Now, I say it's ironic because um, there's this great pressure to conform, to be like everyone else by being an individual. It's kind of like the old, you know, the Monty Python scene. I don't know if you guys are too young for this, but, you know, where the whole crowd shouts in unison, we're all individuals. Thank you. Someone and someone rocks the boat. And yet, we actually, I think we do embrace individualism. It's kind of natural to us in our sinful humanity. I mean, the essence of sin, if you think about it, is, is setting aside what God says and saying, well... I want to decide who I am and what I do myself. That's been going on since, um, since the Garden of Eden. And so as we sit here with our aspirations to change, and as we sit amidst the, the various voices and pressures of our culture, as people who know God and are in relationship with him, we ought to push back against that individualistic instinct. And we ought to consider what God has to say. How does God shape and direct our aspirations to change? Now, fortunately, we don't have to guess because he's told us plainly in the Bible and in the passage before us tonight, it says very clearly what, uh, what it is that God calls us to do, how he calls us to live. And, and we're going to look tonight at the, the, what I call the what and the why of living changed lives. The what and the why of living changed lives. 
Now, as we, as we consider what God says, it ought not surprise us if what we find of what God says is actually quite countercultural. I mean, if you think about it, if the, if the sea that we're swimming in is largely and increasingly defined by people who largely ignore or rebel against God, then it shouldn't surprise us if there's a mismatch, if there's a misalignment between what God says and what the godless voices of our world say. So let's try and sit loosely with what our culture says, with our, perhaps our own norms and expectations, and let's open ourselves to listen to what God says about the what and the why of living changed lives. Now, before we uh, dive into the, to the what, we're going to start with the why. Why should we aspire to live changed lives? Now, I recognise that some people might, you might be thinking, well, you know, it's not really me. I'm not really aspiring to change. I'm just kind of plodding away through life day by day. I want to say that if that's you, well, actually, God calls on us to change, to be different. And the second half of this passage tells us why, why we should aspire to change. And it says something here that I, that I think is actually the most countercultural thing in this chapter, uh, even more so than you know what this says about men or women or even more what it says about slaves. What Paul says here is that there is a God and Saviour who has appeared and who will appear again one day. Now, I think that certainly challenges the godless individualism of our age. Notice there, uh, verse 13, it says, The man Jesus, the Jesus Christ, end of verse 13, the man Jesus who lived, who walked, who did, performed incredible miracles, who died and rose again, the first century man Jesus Christ of Nazareth is described there as our great God and Saviour. Jesus is God. Come among us. And he, as he comes among, um, among us with his grace, he gives us the reason, the motivation, the, the why of living changed lives. See, Jesus came and brought the grace of God. Verse 11 says, For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. The undeserved kindness of God has been revealed by Jesus. Jesus who, verse 14, gave himself for us, gave his life for us. Jesus has, has achieved an incredible change for us. Look there again at verse 14 here, that the change is twofold. He gave himself for us to firstly redeem us from all wickedness, to, to buy us out of slavery to our God-denying wickedness, to release us from living that way. And secondly, to purify for himself a people that are his very own. Jesus gave himself for us to, to purify us, to, to wash us clean from the stain of, of our self-centeredness, from the stain of our individualistic desire to just ignore God and, and do things our own way. He purified us, washed us clean, to save us to be his people who belong to him. We're invited into his family. Redeemed, bought out of wickedness, purified, made to be his people, his treasured possession. And as such, notice the end of verse 14. We are, to be, we are eager to do what is good. 
He, he changes our hearts and gives us a, an eagerness to live the way that he's called us to. This is the, the, the saving and transforming grace of God. That's come to us. That's appeared to us in Jesus. That's what motivates us to live changed lives. You see in the middle of this passage, verse 12, it says, the grace of God has appeared. It, the grace of God, teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age. There's the motivation for living a changed life, a self-controlled, upright, godly life. It's, it's the grace of God, which if, if our trust is in Jesus, he's already freed us, he's purified us, he's made us into God's people, God in his, his grace has generously made us to be his people so that we want to be that, that we're eager to live that out. Eager to, to say no to stuff, godlessness, worldly passions. Yes to living self-controlled, upright and godly lives. And notice we do this with our eyes to the future. Verse 13 continues, while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. So we're living between two appearings. We're living in light of what Jesus has done in his first appearing that offers salvation. And we're living in before what Jesus will do when he comes in glory. Now, if we knew that Jesus was coming back tomorrow, if Jesus is coming back tomorrow and we knew that, that would radically change what you do for the rest of today and tomorrow, right? We don't know that Jesus is coming back tomorrow. I mean, he might. He might come back tonight. He might come back before I finish preaching tonight. We don't know. But we do know that he will come back. And that reality shapes and changes how we live now. Here is the motivation for living a changed life. The, the grace of God in Jesus to redeem us, to purify us, to make us his own, to change our hearts, to want to do good while we wait for his return. This is the why of living a changed life. You can think of it as a, well, a change of identity. Not an identity that we define for ourselves in our individualism, but an identity that, that God gives us in Jesus. Jesus, our God and Saviour. Now, I'm starting with this, sort of the end of the passage, because it's really important that we, we grasp the why. And it's really important that we keep reminding ourselves of this because it's, well, it's really easy for us to slide into either self-righteous moralism where we, our motivation kind of shifts to ourselves and our behaviour becomes an attempt to just kind of live up to our own standards and hopefully that's you know, good enough for God's standards as well. And, or we slide into despair and in our self-pity, we just conclude that, well, we're no good and there's no point trying. No. Jesus gave himself for us, to purify us, to redeem us, to call us to be his people. That's our motivation. So what does it look like to live his way? Let's come to the, the what of living a changed life, which is the first half of this passage. But before we jump into it, I just want to say, let's look at this, not just to, so we can the end of tonight, say, oh yeah, I understand Titus 2 a bit better. Let's look at this 
so as to, to see what it is that God calls us to, that we might aspire to change, change by his grace. All right, Paul says to Titus, 2 verse 1, You, Titus, you, however, must teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. What he's saying is teach the way of life that fits with sound doctrine, that fits with the knowledge of God. And then what he does is he gives five pictures of a, of a life that fits with sound doctrine. And the pictures kind of overlap and, and they form a picture of the Christian life. But interestingly, he doesn't just address everyone as the same and just kind of give one generic list of things to do and to be. He doesn't just say, hey, Titus, teach all the people to be this. No, he addresses people differently according to what? According to their gender and according to their age. That is, a person is not just a generic person. They are a male person or a female person. And I know at this point we're kind of venturing into really countercultural speak to say something that has been just commonly understood and believed by people for millennia, but it's really crazy and radical now. But people are male or a male person or a female person. They're an older person or a younger person. Now, we're not just generic individuals who exist in, in isolation. We actually exist in relationship with one another as, as men, as women, as older, as younger. That may seem obvious, but it's important, I think, for us to remember as we, as we live in this increasingly individualistic culture. So, where do you fit in with this? Are you, are you older or younger? We might tend to identify more with, uh, with one category than another. We've got a range of, uh, of, of ages in the room. Interestingly, I preached on this passage, um, I think it was 16 years ago, as I was a few years out of college, and I looked up my old sermon notes, and I, so I read through them. I thought, oh, it's interesting. I kind of really seem to identify with the younger person. I, I'll put myself in that camp. I'm not so sure anymore, second time around. But even you who think of yourselves as younger people, as indeed you are, many of you, God willing, one day you will be old. You will be old, an older person. And so I want to say aspire to, to take on these qualities. Listen to what it is to be an older Christian man, an older Christian woman. What's more, I think it's uh, helpful to see these terms, older, um, younger, is in relative ways, that uh, we are all older than some people, except maybe Caleb is the, is the true younger. Um, and so we have a role. We all have a role to play in setting an example to those who are younger. Well, let's, let's dive into it. What does he say to older men? Verse 2, teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love and in endurance. He says, older men, if you, if you have sound doctrine, if you know God, express that as you live, by, firstly, by being temperate. What is it to be temperate? It's not a word you kind of use all the time, but it's got the idea of being level-headed. Of, of not being extreme or excessive, but, but restrained. Not, not indulgent, can be uh, applied to, to drinking alcohol. Uh, but it's broader than that. He, he's saying be, be restrained. Don't indulge yourself in your desires, your bad habits. Be temperate. Secondly, he says, older men, be worthy of respect. There ought to be a certain, certain seriousness and dignity in how older men behave, that, that invites respect and be self-controlled. 
you know, we'll see this is a theme throughout the various groups. Um, self-control is it's the idea of, of using your mind, being thoughtful about your behaviour, having your mind in control of your actions, not just acting sort of instinctively and doing whatever comes to your head. It's, it's being deliberate, being self-controlled. And he says, be sound or, or healthy, you could, you could uh, say, in faith, faith in God, trusting him. Confidence is in God. Sound in, in love towards God and towards other people. And in endurance. Stick at it. I mean, one thing about being old, not that I would know anything, but one thing, but one thing about being old is that you've, you've just been going at it for longer. So keep going. Keep enduring. Look forward to, to what God has in store for you. Keep running all the way to the end. Uh, I watched a little bit of the uh, Commonwealth Games last night and uh, the women's marathon was on. and um, it, it was amazing performance from the, the Aussie Jessica um, Sten, Stenson. That's right. Anyone see it? Yep, yep, excellent. That's a picture of endurance and strength running all, all the way to the end. So to the men amongst us, that's a picture of, of being a Christian man. It's a picture to aspire to. Who wouldn't want to be an older man like this? Temperate, even, worthy of respect, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, in endurance. And yet, it's not something that actually just comes naturally. I think left, left to our, our own sinful selves, uh, older men can easily become something quite opposite to this. Instead of being... Well, instead of being temperate, they can be volatile. Instead of being worthy of respect, they can just be, well, cranky old men. Instead of being self-controlled, be unfiltered. Just doing whatever, saying whatever he feels like. That's not what God calls us to. So, men, let's be trained, taught by the grace of God. Say no to ungodliness, no to, to, to our worldly ambitions and to align ourselves to live in line with the truth of God's word. Older women. Are there any older women here? No, I won't ask you to put your hands up. Um, <laughs> maybe there's, there's women who one day plan to be older. Um, a, a dear relative of mine, uh, when she turned, I think it was 70 or maybe it was 65, she decided that it was time to start referring to herself as, as middle-aged. <laughs> what does this say to older women verse 3 likewise that is teaching what's, you know, what, what accords with sound doctrine teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live not to be slanderous or addicted to much wine but to teach what is good now, like temperate, I suppose reverence is one of these words we don't use very much, but it's, it's talking about their demeanour, their, their manner, how they, how they present themselves. Literally, they're to have the demeanour that befits a holy person. They're to be as a, as a holy person is. I understand women can often feel um, quite a bit of pressure by our culture around how they present themselves. It's not only women, it's, but I think perhaps it's especially true of women. A lot of time, a lot of effort, a lot of money can be spent on trying to, to cover up who we are or, on, or who we're becoming or to try to, to be someone 
that we're not or trying to, to be someone that we used to be. That's, that's really what our world values. And I want to say, well, look, there's nothing wrong with um, you know, looking nice, nothing wrong with taking care of yourself. But what God's word says to older women is the most important thing to focus on in terms of how you present yourself is to have a character, a manner that is holy, that is reverent, that expresses our relationship with God. Uh, 1 Peter 3 uh, speaks of cultivating the beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. And if you can think about um, old people that you know, but I think some of the most beautiful people I know, physically they're, they're old, they're wrinkled, they're weathered, but in terms of their character, they're stunningly beautiful. This holiness, this reverence that they have, that, that is then to be expressed in action. As verse 3 says, the older women are to not be slanderous. That is, knowing the truth, that actually should change the way that we speak. Now, why are older women particularly sort of, is this something they particularly need to hear? Uh, I don't know, perhaps. One thing I haven't noticed about uh, when women get together, young or old, is there's one thing that seems to happen quite a lot. Anyone want to say what it is? Talking. Yes, there's a lot of words. Um, maybe that's why this is, this is addressed. You've got to be careful. We've got to be careful with those words, especially words about other people. We're not to be gossips or slanderers. Thirdly, older women... Sorry, I should just say, I think that's something true for all of us. We, we all need to be careful we're not being gossips or slanderers. Um, th- but thirdly, older women are to, uh, to not be addicted to much wine, it says. Literally, not to be a slave to it. That is, alcohol is, is not the way to cope with the difficulties of life. It's not the way to escape your troubles. Now, for many people, having, um, having a drink is not a problem. And look, the Bible says that, that alcohol is, good, is part of it, is a good gift from God. It's a good part of his creation. But like many good things, it can be abused. It can be misused. And alcohol addiction is a massive problem in Australian society. Uh, and yet, at the same time, drunkenness is just kind of accepted and celebrated. It's you know, part of being Australian. And I think at this point, as Christians, we actually need to, to be different. We actually need to perhaps even stand out as being different, as to, as to say, well, no to drunkenness, to not be a slave to alcohol. I want to say, if this is a problem for you, or if it's... No, it's not a problem, is it? No, that's, you don't think of it as a problem, but maybe if you've just got a question running around your head, oh, I wonder if alcohol could be a problem for me one day. If you're asking that question, I want to say, look into it. Maybe have a, have a chat to a trusted friend, have a chat to your GP. This is a big problem in Australian society and it's something that affects Christians as well. Don't become enslaved to alcohol. Last thing for older women, what does it say? They are to be teachers. They are to teach what is good. The reason is given in verse 4, it's so that... Have we got it here? Is this working? Yep, there we are. So that or then they can urge, literally they can train the younger women. So older women, your words, your actions, by those, you are a model. You are a trainer for younger women. 
That's your God-given role and responsibility. Uh, notice Titus isn't told to teach and train the younger women. That's the task. That, the task is much more appropriate uh, for older women to take on. So let me encourage you, women, of whatever age you are, because you're all older than some, let me encourage you to, to take an interest in the women younger than you. You can be of great help. You can be a great encouragement to them to live as a godly woman. And let me encourage you younger women, which is, well, it's got to be pretty much everyone here, except for maybe one person, whoever's the oldest. Um, get to know those women who are older than you and draw on their experience, their wisdom. That can be an enormous encouragement and benefit to you. I think often in churches we, we can sort of clump together with people our age and stage and there's a sense in which that's natural, that's, that's kind of normal. But let's look for opportunities to make the most of the rich opportunities that God gives us in relationship with one another as the older trains the younger. Verse 4, they're to train the younger women to... Here we go. Uh, to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind and to be subject to their husbands. Um, now, this is speaking about younger women assuming that they are married, which in those cases was usually the case. I know many of you, you're not married, but maybe one day you will be. Here's um, good things to be listening to. Notice firstly that they're to be trained to love their husbands. That's not something that they just automatically you know, do. They need to learn to do that. It doesn't always naturally come naturally. It's something that needs to be worked at. Speaking as a husband, I know that husbands can be you know, hard to love sometimes, but um, it's something to be, to be learned. It's not a kind of Hollywood, just magic thing that happens. Uh, likewise, women are to be trained to love their children. It's often just assumed that, that you know, mothers will just love their children naturally, and they may have a strong natural bond of affection for them, though not always. But I think this is speaking of something more than that. It's, it's learning to truly love your children, to give them the priority and the importance that they should have as your children, to act in love for their good. It's something to be worked at, something to, to be learned. It's part of living this changed lifestyle. Verse 5, young women are also taught to be self-controlled. There's that word again. Now, like the older men, they're to be have that, that thoughtfulness about their behaviour, to be deliberate, to be in control. Uh, in the context, it next speaks of being pure, so perhaps this has the idea of, of sexual purity and sexual self-control. They're to, to love their husbands and not seek sexual relationship outside of marriage, but rather be pure. Next instruction might, um, might offend our cultural sensibilities. It says young women are to be busy at home. Or as the ESV puts it, to be workers at home. Now, what does this mean? Well, firstly, don't just jump to what you think it's saying. Actually, think about what it is saying and what it's not saying. It's not actually talking about particular domestic duties, saying that, you know, well, she must do the vacuuming and the, the ironing or whatever it is. And sadly, I think this passage has, uh, has probably been, almost certainly been twisted and misused by men as a horrendous form of spiritual abuse. It's not commenting about who does what domestic duty. I mean, I think you just work that out based on common sense and love. Neither does it say that women shouldn't work outside the home. To say that they should be good workers of the home doesn't necessarily exclude them being good workers outside the home too. 
And it doesn't say that men shouldn't be workers of the home. In fact, if you have a read of 1 Timothy 3, Paul describes a godly man as someone who manages his own household well. Men need to be engaged and active in the the well-running of their households. So what is this saying? Well, what it's doing is it's affirming that it's right and appropriate for a woman to be a good worker of her home, to, to be loving and caring for her husband and children. That is a good and right thing to do. And I think we in, in 21st century Australia need to hear this. Let me speak as a man, recognising that, as the scriptures say, this is for younger women, it's just kind of better coming from older women. But I think we all need to hear this, men and women alike. The, the feminist movement over the past 50 years or so has, has done some, some good and brought some good and needed changes. But sadly, it's also done much to devalue the importance of a woman's relationships within her family. I'm told women often feel an expectation to to have it all, to have the satisfying progressive career, or at least bring in the dough and, and be the perfect mother and wife. And if you don't have it all, well, you're somehow seen as a failure or, or you're tempted to see yourself that way. I think this passage is a really helpful corrective to that way of thinking. It's not saying you shouldn't have a job outside the home. It doesn't actually comment on that. Other parts of the Bible do speak of, give examples of, you know, industrious, uh, industrious business women. I'm thinking particularly of um, Proverbs 31 with the, uh, the, the superwoman of Proverbs 31 who kind of does it all, who manages work inside and outside the home quite amazingly. But what God does here is... He reinforces the value and importance of young women who are married, who have children, to to give themselves to that important and godly work of loving and serving their families. That must be part of their priority, part of their godliness. I think it's a, a helpful corrective to a culture that often devalues family and particularly motherhood. Uh, last word to young women is also quite countercultural. Verse 5 says they are to be subject to their husbands. Again, notice what it's not saying. It's not saying always do whatever he says. Rather, it's about recognising, respecting the responsibility that God has given to your husband. And uh, husbands here, or would-be husbands, your responsibility is not spelled out here, but have a read of Ephesians 5 and you'll see the important responsibility that God has placed on you to sacrificially love your wife as Christ loves the church, to act for her good and to give yourself up for her. Wives are to recognise and respect that responsibility. How are you going? You hanging in there? We've got two sections to go. But before we dive into young men and slaves, notice the end of verse 5 gives the reason for living this way. It says, so that no one will malign the word of God. See the connection between the teaching about Jesus and our behaviour? This word should change the way we live. And if we don't change, well, then the word is maligned, it's slandered, it's abused. So live this changed life so that no one will malign the word of God. Young men, verse 6, similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled. Why do they only get one thing to focus on? 
That's all they need? That's all they can handle? I think it's, it's, I was going to say it's the rude women who will say that, isn't it? But it's, it's the guys calling it out. They, they know it's true. Um, look, I'm not going to go so far as to say there's only, they're going to do one thing at a time, but it may be self-control really captures what young men particularly need to pay attention to. Um, that, that, remember that self-control? It's that soundness of mind. It's that thinking about how to behave. It's using your, your head. Not being rash or extreme, but being considered, being deliberate, being under control. Making the effort to stop and think about our behaviour. What's wrong with it? How do I need to change? Now you might think through all different sorts of areas of life where self-control is, is called for. Sexual purity, not getting angry quickly, other areas. It's interesting the one area that Paul picks up on for Titus to work on and set as an example to the young men is in the area of speech. He says, verse 7, in your teaching show, in your teaching show integrity, seriousness and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned. Self-control is, is related to how we speak. We're not, to, we're not to argue and complain and carry on. But our speech should be, have, a, have an integrity to it. Our motives should be pure. We're not, not about it promoting ourselves. And there should be a certain seriousness to our speech. I don't know, do young men need to remember and be reminded that it's, you know, it's not all just a big joke? There's a certain seriousness to it. Um, there should be a soundness of speech, a healthiness that cannot be condemned. I think for all of us, I mean, our speech is an area which we need to continue to work on to live consistent with God's word. Uh, lastly, slaves. Um, it's not a, a direct parallel, but um, I think this does have implications for the way that we go, conduct ourselves in work situations. Uh, if you know God through Jesus, then that, that will and must affect how you conduct yourself at work. We will respect those who are in authority over us. We'll, we'll be characterised by an honesty, a willingness to, to work. There won't be defiance in our conduct. We'll, we'll be trustworthy. As God's people, as people who've been saved, by, who belong to Jesus, our conduct at work must be different. And notice the, the, uh, the reason there at the end of verse 10, it's so that, whoops, uh, so that in every way they'll make the teaching about God, our Saviour, attractive. So our, our changed lifestyle will, will adorn the teaching about God. People will see that. They'll see the difference that being a Christian makes to life. Well, there we have five pictures of the Christian life. And I want to, I guess, ask you now, how do you sit with these? Are there ways that you need to be, to be working on? Are there things, areas in which you need to change? Or ways you need to, to continue to change, to persist in that, to, to endure in living that way, that changed life? How does and, and will your life align with sound doctrine, with the Word of God? Is it being temperate, being self-controlled, worthy of respect, not slandering, being reverent, not addicted to alcohol, being sound in faith, in love, in endurance? There's a lot of things to think through in this passage and I, and I want to leave you with it, maybe later on tonight or tomorrow, have a read over Titus 2 and, and, and reflect and ask God to, to show you how you need to be changing, how you need to be continuing to live a changed life. But in all of that, remember the motivation for change. 
the grace of God has appeared to bring us salvation, to redeem us, to purify us, to make us Jesus' own people who are eager to do what is good. That's who we are. We're called to, to be what God in Jesus has already saved us to be. Yeah, it does involve work. It does involve saying no to, to godless stuff. It does involve saying yes to living self-controlled, upright and godly lives. And we won't always get it right. And when we fail, we need to keep coming back to the grace of God. Keep coming back to the, the cross of Jesus who gave himself for us to redeem us, to purify us. But as we set about living this changed life, motivated by the grace of God, it's not an oppressive burden. It's a liberating joy and delight to live the way that we were made to be. Last thing I want to say is, you might be here tonight as someone who's not a Christian. Yeah, you haven't put your trust in Jesus. If that's the case, I want to say, well done, making it to the end of a very long sermon. Um, but I also want to say, I hope this gives you a bit of a picture of the Christian life and of the difference that it makes to be one of Jesus' people who are saved by him, who are redeemed and purified by him. And I want to encourage you to find the truth that is in Jesus and to become one of his people and to live the way that he has made you to be. Feel free to chat to me or to Ben about how, what that means and how you go about doing that. But how about a pray for us as we finish? Let's pray. Our Lord God, our gracious, loving, heavenly Father, we do indeed thank and praise you for your grace to us. Father, for the times in which we, we fail to live your way, please forgive us. And Father, we thank you for your grace that Jesus has given himself for us to purify us, to redeem us, to make us a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. Father, please grow us in that. Please shape us, teach us, discipline us out of love. Father, please grow us, empower us to live out your grace in lives that fit with who we are in Jesus. We ask this in his name and for his glory. Amen.